0: The scripture this morning is from the book of James, chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. Hear the word of the Lord. My brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in filthy clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, Here's a good seat for you. But say to the poor man, you stand there, or sit on the floor by my feet. Have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my dear brothers and sisters. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are blaspheming the noble name of him to whom you belong? If you really keep the royal law found in scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. For he who said, you shall not commit adultery, also said, you shall not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do commit murder, you have become a lawbreaker. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom, because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. This is God's word.
1: Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we approach your Word today, I pray that we would be quick to listen. That we would be slow to speak, slow to anger. Holy Spirit, make us teachable today. Make us open, humble, and meet. Father, I pray that we would be quick to apply these words to ourselves first and slow to apply them to others. Lord, if we're honest, it's so easy to blame others and to play the victim. To call out someone else's favoritism while being blind to our own. Father, I also pray the words Christ prayed so long ago. We find them in John 17. May we all be one just as you, Father, and your Son are one. May we be one so that the world would believe you, Father, have sent Jesus. Forgive us for the ways that we discriminate. Forgive us for the ways that we show favoritism. Forgive us for the ways that we exclude. Convict us to see that these run counter to your very prayer for your church. Lord, I pray Your words would correct us. Your words would rebuke us. Your words would train us to live into the righteousness that we have from Christ. And it is His name we pray. Amen. Well, today, in essence, is part two. Last week, Doug started off this passage, and today is the the sequel Doug very well could have ended his sermon with to be continued, right? And so in, in this week, as the text begins to scroll across the screen, connecting the, the two sermons, sorry, that's a Star Wars reference. That's... Either way, both sermons go hand in hand. Both passages go hand in hand. And if you thought Doug's sermon or, or the passage last week was like a bat, James now puts nails in the bat. And he, he just, it, it just gets harder. Because James now connects the issue of favoritism directly to breaking the law, directly to not loving your neighbor as yourself. See, what we now learn through verses 8 and 9 is that favoritism is, is not only sin, but it's not loving your neighbor. So what I want to do this morning is I want to briefly recap favoritism. If you want more in-depth, I encourage you, pull up Doug's sermon online, listen to it uh, from last week. Um, But then I also want to touch on how favoritism is is counter-loving, then the problem of the broken law, and finally the good news of mercy, and our own call to mercy. But before I recap, I've, I've got a ground rule. You see, it can be really easy for us because of sin, because of our own pride, because of our own selfishness, it can be really easy to go, I don't have that problem, but that group over there, man, it's not that big of a deal for me, but, but that, that little click over there, that group, they, they really have a problem. We can be so quick to, to lay the blame at someone else's feet and to play the victim. It's really fascinating. There's a lot of social science studies on this stuff, which just point back to Scripture and our own selfishness and our own pride, how, how quickly we tend to ascribe negative character traits to a person. Like we'll say, that person is an impatient person. That person is a proud person, an arrogant person. But for us, for ourselves, we're, well, the circumstances made me impatient. If they knew the whole situation, they would know that, that the circumstances is what made me patient. Our ground rule goes back to what James started the chapter with. Be quick to listen. Slow to speak. Slow to anger. Be quick to point at your own heart. And be slow to point at the hearts of others. Now, for our recap, a flashback of sorts, James is, is seeing an issue within the church that's running counter to what God has called us to. It's running counter to, to the call that Christ has given to us as we follow him. Now, the, the, the challenge is James is calling out something that was completely normal within their culture, it's the proverbial cultural stew unaware of how the broth has has seeped into the potatoes you see in 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 their day and age there are multiple strata that people knew and understood that you do not cross between them but it can be very easy for us to look back and go man they didn't get it they're not enlightened like us but in reality, favoritism is exclusion for a, various, for a number of reasons, whether it's race, gender, money, social clout, whatever it is, favoritism is exclusion. And James is dealing with that exclusion, and we're called to inclusion. There's a couple of movie examples of this. If you've ever seen the movie Titanic, it came out, I think, in 1999. Uh, if you haven't, I won't ruin the ending for you. Um, but... In it, in it and, and by the way, Jack could have fit on that door. There's, he, in it, there's a scene, right, where Jack is this low, poor person who's on the, the, the bottom rung of the ship, like he's a nobody, and he meets this girl and gets dressed up and goes to the fancy rich people part, and, and he, he's trying to blend in, but in reality, they, they, they all exclude him. They all snicker at him, make jokes at his expense. There's another woman in the story who comes into a lot of money and they still do it to her because that money's not old, it's new money. There's another example in the movie Australia, if you've ever seen this one, it uh, in, in, takes place during World War II back in, um, in the back country of Australia and there's a scene where the war in essence comes to this little town and the local watering hole, the local bar gets burned up and gets destroyed and the people are trying to return to some, tor- some, some form of normalcy, And in that town, black people were not allowed into the bar. And and Hugh Jackman, who's white, after that, after the war, after the bomb, after the explosions, they both come, his partner, who's black, comes into the bar together. And the bartender screams out, hey, no, you're not allowed in here. And the shock of, what? it's just the way it is, the bartender says. Hugh Jackman's response is, just because that's the way it is doesn't mean that's the way it should be. Again, I think it can be easy for us to look back in history and go, oh, yeah, that was definitely exclusion. That was definitely discrimination. That was definitely, or to look at other people and say the same thing. But again, the call is my heart. How have I excluded? How have I shown favoritism? Recently, I used the illustration with students called uh, Widen the Circle, right? We've all felt like that little boy before. We've all felt outside the circle. But we've also all been in the circle. And the call that James is calling us to is to widen the circle. To make room for others. To love your neighbor as yourself. This is, in essence, verses 8 and 9. The call is to love our neighbor as ourselves rather than show favoritism. Romans 2.11 God does not show any partiality We are called to be like father, like child, to be impartial as he is impartial. And James here also links together the concept of law and love. Following the law, obedience and love. These are not foreign to James. James would have heard this from Jesus in in John chapter 14. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. You will obey. John also writes about it. This is the love of God that we keep His commandments. I also think it's really interesting that in verse 8, James uses the word royal law. Royal law. That word royal carries with it connotations of, of the king's word, the king's law, what the king has spoken. Here's what's fascinating to me about this. James, the brother of Jesus, is saying he's who he claimed to be. He is the king. And his law is that we love each other as we love ourselves. Second fascinating thing, if you look in verse 5, James has just declared that we are heirs of the kingdom, to inherit the kingdom. So now he announces, if you are an heir, here is his law. Here is his rule the king's law, for his kingdom, for us. As followers of Christ, professing him as Lord, as king, we belong to his kingdom and to his law. Not to cultures. And this looks different. Because within his kingdom we see a trend of reversal. After all, again, God chooses the poor in the eyes of the world. Paul talks about the unwise in the world, the fools in the world. The trend we see in the kingdom is a great reversal. We see a trend of inclusion. We see a trend of loving those that the culture deems not worthy of my love. Again, I don't think James is far off. If you remember the story that Jesus told of the Good Samaritan, you can find this in Luke 10 if you're unfamiliar with the story. Jesus explaining what it means to be a good neighbor. Jesus is expanding the concept of the neighbor. And in the story, right, there's a man, he gets beat up, his money gets stolen, he's left by the side of the road, and two people pass by him. The two people that you would think would extend mercy to him, instead show favoritism. While the Samaritan was impartial. Now again, the story ends with the concept of mercy, and we're going to come back around to that. But I want to draw your attention to this idea again of law and love are not mutually exclusive. They're not pitted against each other. Obedience to the king's rule is not counter love. Because obedience to the royal law is not meritorious in nature, meaning it doesn't save you in nature. It's responsive in nature. We've already received adoption as heirs. Now our longing is to give our lives to God in loving obedience, following His royal law. My last thought concerning loving your neighbor, right? A lot can be said, and we can spend a lot of time on the concept of love. Uh, And I do think culturally we tend to define it right in emotive terms, and I think that's a part of it. But the Bible speaks of an action-oriented love, which again, I think... I think fits what James is talking about, to live out the word. As he says in 12, to speak and act. And I think you could spend a lot of time just rereading and processing and praying over 1 Corinthians 13 and the definition of love there. I think that's one of the best. I think the second best is a song by DC Talk, Love is a Verb. If you're not familiar with it, Google it. You're welcome. It's the best 1992 had to offer. Um, <laughs> So verses 8 and 9 are linking law and love and the call and, and drawing uh, the distinction even further. In, in 10 through 11, James is pushing past the, the way in which we so often go, ah, that's not really that big of a deal, right? I mean, I didn't kill anybody. Just might have excluded that person over there. It's not that big of a deal. But similar to James one twenty six, similar to our words, we are shown that favoritism is far more serious than we might think james is in essence saying what we thought was a small sin in reality there are no small sins in reality favoritism is sin now sometimes we we and this is james's point okay so sometimes we approach the law as a collection of laws Right? Okay, so here's, uh, you know, do not commit adultery. Here's do not commit murder, right? Well, you know what? Uh, no, I didn't do that today, but I lied today. So, but the collection as a whole, I've kept. The collection, okay, so maybe I looked lustfully at a, at a, at a woman today, but the collection as a whole, I've kept most of it. Here's the bad news. James is saying this is not how the royal law works. It is not a collection of laws. The law is is far more like a sheet of glass. And and what James is drawing attention to is the fact that okay, I didn't I didn't murder anybody, but but I committed adultery. It's all broken. This is terrible news for us. Because James is elevating favoritism on the same level as adultery and murder. And James is saying whatever it is, it's broken. You have broken the law. This is bad news. But I think Jesus even pushes it further because we can easily go, Well, I haven't committed adultery and I haven't committed murder. Matthew 5, Jesus pushes past physical action and he pushes down into our hearts in the way that we look and feel at other people. You and I have broken the royal law, and there's no repairing that. You can try. It's not going to work. Now, again, sometimes, and this gets to the, the part in the passage where he talks about the law uh, that gives freedom. He's used that reference again before. And two weeks ago, I referenced the concept of board games and rules and things like that. A lot of times we approach God's law and go, well, you know what? I kind of, I know a little bit better. Or we buy into the lie that, no, 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 that's not going to free me. What's going to free me is to do what I want to do. But in reality, that binds you. In reality, that shackles you. Following God's law brings true freedom. Here, here's, here's a way of this, this kind of looks. So you take the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20, if you're unfamiliar with what those are where those are the ten commandments right within god's law we get a picture of who god is and how god intended us to live so that we would exhibit him to other people if you're unfamiliar the first four of the ten commandments are vertical in nature the way in which we love the lord our god with all our heart with all our soul and with all our mind the next six the last six are horizontal in nature The way in which we love our neighbor as ourselves. See, we love our parents by honoring them. We love our spouse by remaining faithful. We love our neighbors by respecting their property. We love them by telling the truth to them and about them. We love them by willing their good rather than coveting their goods. That's the law That gives us freedom. But we have to deal with the bad news. We've broken it. That's James's point here. But there's good news. There's the good news of mercy. The mercy that God extends to lawbreakers. Now, mercy... You might be familiar with that word. The Twitter definition is God not giving us what we deserve, right? Grace is the opposite of that, giving us something that we don't deserve. But that's, that, it, it doesn't go deep enough. It's a good definition, but it doesn't go deep enough because sometimes that can carry with it the connotation that God not giving us what we deserve, but he's just waiting. He's just, he's, ah, why I ought to, to the moon, that's one of the references for some of the older people. <laughs> we, it, it kind of paints this picture of God that he's, he's, he's withholding, but, but he's, he's ready. The deeper concept of mercy, yes, is you not getting what you deserve, but with it carries the connotations of steadfast love, steadfast compassion. Stepping into someone else's chaos. That's mercy. That's what Jesus did. He stepped into our chaos to provide us with mercy and grace. We have another story in Matthew 18, Jesus tells, that exhibits, I think it illustrates this concept of mercy. The story begins in the throne room, the king's throne room. And the king is settling accounts. He's calling in debts. He's, he's beginning to bear judgment on those that he's loaned money to. You can find this in uh, Matthew 18 again. So the king calls in an individual over to, to himself that owes him in modern terms about $20 million, an, insurmount, an impossible amount to pay off. So the servant does the only thing that he knows to do. He throws himself to the mercy of the king. Pleading the king to show mercy, to show compassion, to forgive the debts in his entirety. Now, I'm sure the servant felt gratitude. But his gratefulness didn't extend past himself because he's walking around town now, a free man, and he sees somebody else who owes him money, a small portion, 2,000 compared to 20 million. And he has the guy thrown in jail. Word gets back to the king, and it does not end well for this servant. God's mercy to us is like that king's mercy to that servant. And James is saying that to the degree that we grasp God's mercy for us, we will extend it to others. Like father, like child or as Jesus said be merciful just as your father is merciful The amazing news is that God is merciful to lawbreakers His judgment was coming but in mercy he stepped into our chaos and it was passed on to Jesus at the cross and those who claim Jesus as king receive that mercy Do you claim him as king But it comes at a cost, and it calls us to extend mercy to others. Now, there's many examples that we can, we can use to talk about mercy and judgment or justice in history. I was just watching a documentary uh, about a cult from the early 80s, the Rajneesh cult, uh, in the backwaters of Oregon. Um, and so as there's was, there was one woman in this story who, not the, the right-hand person to the cult leader, but another woman who had so, was so entangled up into it, was convinced that she needed, her and a couple others needed to try and assassinate a U.S. attorney. It doesn't work. It doesn't happen. But eventually her and some others flee overseas. And there's still an international arrest warrant out for her. But she stays overseas and she gets some bad news. And I'm going to let her tell the rest of the story.
2: I met my husband George in this juice bar. And slowly, slowly I began to get back to planet Earth. At the same time outside Germany there was still an international arrest warrant hanging over my head. The case to murder Mr. Turner remained open. The prosecution alleged that the women plotted to kill Oregon's former U.S. attorney Charles Turner if found guilty the women could be given a life sentence in a U.S. jail. But also at that time. I had a stability I had never had before. I was free from prosecution in America as long as I could stay in Germany. And one day, in the middle of the night, the phone rang. It was my daughter-in-law. Jane, she said, Peter's in hospital. I was hearing for the first time that my son had a brain tumor. And that he might die. I was in absolute shock. But the arrest warrant meant I could not travel to Australia to go to my dying son. I had to travel to America. I had to throw myself at the mercy of the court without any guarantees whatsoever. I wanted to be free to be able to go to my children at a time like this. George and I went to the airport in Frankfurt and boarded a plane for Portland. We walked together to the federal courthouse. It was raining that morning. I was very, very focused. The court had the discretion of sentencing me to life imprisonment, but I knew that this was what had to be done. As proceedings began, First the prosecutor spoke and asked that the judge sentence me appropriately. Then it was my turn to speak. I felt compelled to stand to what I had done. I read my statement and then the moment would come for sentencing. Judge Marsh said that sometimes justice is stronger than mercy, and that's okay. But sometimes mercy overrules justice. And we have such a case before us today. And therefore, he was sentencing me to time served. I was free. I was free. And through my tears I could see that everybody in the courtroom was happy for me. FBI agents came up to me, shook my hand, and said, Congratulations, Mrs. Talk. you deserve it. I wasn't a criminal in that moment. I was a free woman with a son who was dying. And that brought everybody together in a very human way. Even today, when I think about it, yeah, brings tears to my eyes. It was the most incredible experience to become aware that there were a lot of people around me that day who were glad that I could go to my son and be with him when he died.
1: I was free. No longer a criminal, but a freed woman. And the call then is to live differently. To extend the same mercy. In receiving mercy, speak and act as ones who long to give mercy. To love others as yourself. James is is calling us again to, in verse 12, to speak and to act. Not out of fear of coming judgment, but to speak and act as ones who have received mercy, who have received compassion, who have received a second chance. But he does offer a very, very strong warning to, that non-merciful judgment will come on those who do not speak and do not act by the same mercy that they've seen from God. Understand that the bad news is bad. But the good news is amazing. Don't just say you believe it. Live it out. Act it out. Finally, how? How? How can we begin to do this? At the end of May, I preached on how we live the church. And I thought of those as well. I think those are fitting. We choose curiosity over criticism. We choose trust over suspicion. We choose unity over division. But I think more importantly, we begin our days with gratitude. My sin is nailed to your cross. Thank you, Jesus. My soul is healed by your scars. Thank you, Jesus. This is reminding yourself of the gospel. This is preaching the gospel to yourself. The news that it's finished, that your sin is vanquished. And then speak God's mercy to yourself and go and speak it to others. These are ways in which we speak and we act out the royal law to love one another as ourselves, to extend mercy in the way that we have received mercy. In essence, to be like father, like child. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, when my doubt and when my shame hang over me, I run to the cross. I run to that rugged hell of hills, of that rugged hill of hell's defeat. And I find a fortress. I find victory. I find you, Christ, Father. We. I don't. I don't think we can fully, fully grasp the length. of, of mercy that you have extended to us, how far you had to go to step into our chaos. But I pray you would expand our grasp. You would help us grasp it, help us imagine it, so that we in turn would live that out. Father, if you convict us for the ways in which we exclude, I pray that we would see that all sin is vanquished, but we are also called to a great reversal. We are called to widen the circle. And Father, as we, as we give you our tithes and our offerings, these are but a small gift, a small act of worship of the abundant life that you have granted us and given to us in your grace and your mercy. Father, what we do now is an act of worship. It's, it's a way in which we say just as you have widened the circle for us, Christ, we long to do the same for Charlotte, for this country, and for the globe. So we pray that you would use our tithes and our offerings to extend your royal law, to extend your kingdom. In the saving name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.